trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You're probably here because you think you're going to hear something you won't get through legacy or mainstream media sources. Well, guess what? You're right. Absolutely 100% correct. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to necessarily agree with what I'm sharing with you. After all, this is where we revel in wrong think, which means that uh, we're just trying to think as clearly and independently as we can about the world around us. Kind of necessary. As you're going to hear in the course of today's show... We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the skewed statistics and some of the different propaganda that comes at us. And hopefully, hopefully you'll come away with a little more intellectual ammunition and a better understanding of who you are and what you stand for, as opposed to simply, well, who am I against and what am I supposed to hate? I don't like fear or enemy-driven thinking. Although I got to tell you, you know, it's tough sometimes to walk that line between talking about what's going on in the world and not playing to people's uh, fears just because there's there's some kind of fearful stuff going on there's there's a lot of uh, instability i'm trying to be diplomatic but you get what i'm saying the world is a very unstable rather broken place and it's not getting better at least in the short term but you and i we nonetheless have the opportunity to to do some great things and i'm going to try to inspire you to do the most important thing that any one of us can do as individuals and that is to step up and become the most extraordinary person, individual, that you can. It's going to look different for every one of us, but I'm convinced this is the way. If I could borrow a quote from the Mandalorian, this is the way. You don't go about fixing everybody else. A lot of people get in the habit of, well, if we just use state power, you know, if we can harness the power of the state, we can make everybody better. Nope. It starts with you, it starts with me, and it starts with a desire to be better. Here's the crazy thing, though. You work on becoming a better person, and the world around you improves. It's like your example matters. Huh? What a concept. All right. So, a couple sponsors I want to mention here as we delve into today's show. HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. These sponsors are all listed in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Well worth your time to check them out. If you live where you can do business with them, do business with them. After all, they're the ones who are helping keep me on the air, and I do appreciate everything that they do. So before I go too far, I want to share a little adventure that I experienced yesterday. And I'm going to put adventure in air quotes just because this is not the kind of adventure that I recommend for anybody. Like, yeah, you should try it. It's really cool. So I have, a, I have a couple of dogs. They're both really, really great dogs. I love them dearly. One is a puppy, and he's very excitable, and he is always hungry. And what I mean by that is any time I so much as move toward our kitchen, I mean, he is right there. Boom, hey, is there going to be some food involved or what? You know, and he's just like dancing all around my feet and whatnot. He's maybe six months old, maybe a little bit more. Big puppy. Golden Lab cross with... I don't know what he's crossed with, but he is a big, big dog. And I stood up yesterday, finished a little bit of work, and thought, okay, it's time to get up and fix some lunch. 
And I stood up and immediately, boom, he's right there at my side. Hey, we're going to go to the kitchen. There's going to be some food. And so to play on his excitement, I thought, well, I'm going to play along with this. And I, I, I took off, you know, across my living room, like so three or four steps, <laughs> like on a dead run for the kitchen. And I went to turn into the kitchen and something happened that has never happened before. And that is, I don't know what I slipped on, but I went to turn the corner and my feet flew out from under me and all 200 plus pounds of me fell right onto my left shoulder hard. It was bad. It was, it was hard enough that, uh, you know, first some bad words came out and then came the realization, Ooh, I've, I have wrecked myself pretty good here. I couldn't move my left arm. I was bleeding from my forehead. Somehow I bounced my forehead off the floor. And anyway, it was, uh, it was a little bit concerning. And I'm, and I'm realizing as I'm laying there going, oh, and the dog is licking me. I'm thinking, oh, you want to play? You came down to my level. I, I'm sitting there thinking I left my phone in the other room. And now I'm trying to decide because I, I almost immediately, it was the kind of, it was the kind of hit that I started going into shock. Like I could feel myself getting shocky and I'm thinking, can I crawl? Can I roll? <laughs> can I slither over, you know, to the living room and get my, my phone? Um, fortunately, it passed fairly quickly, but but it was clear. I had really messed myself up. And it turns out I totally dislocated my left shoulder. I couldn't move my arm. It was absolutely frozen in place. I could move my fingers, so I didn't know if it was broken or not. And uh, anyway, that's uh, that's some pretty legit pain. You know, I've seen the little uh, smiley face, not so smiley, frowny face, you know, hysterical face. Is it on a scale of one to 10? How's your pain? I hit 10. I think I hit 10 for the first time yesterday. That was, that was revealing. And, and I got to give some props here. First of all, my son, David, what a great young man, dropped what he was doing, came and I was going to drive myself, you know, to Instacare to go get it checked out. Now, my son David came and got me and drove me to Instacare. And, um, you know, it was about the time we got to the, to the Instacare clinic. That's when the shock started wearing off and the pain really started setting in. Holy cow. That's, uh, you know, people who deal with chronic pain, I've said this before, I really feel for, for what they're dealing with. I went through, I don't know, three, three and a half hours of pretty severe pain. And, you know, it was, I, I don't know how people do it. I really don't. That's, it, it's been a long time since I have experienced pain that uh, left me in tears. This did it. It was harsh. And uh, once, once I got through at the clinic, they, they said, well, we've x-rayed your shoulder and, you know, it looks like it's dislocated. So they said, uh, we, can have, we have a guy here who could, could try to put it in for you. What we recommend, though, is you should go to the emergency room and, and, and have them do, you know, some mild sedation before they put it in. And I was like, hey, I'm down with that idea. Rather, rather have, a, you know, the pain that I can't remember than, than the pain I'm fully aware of. And on the drive over there, I get a phone call from the clinic and they say, hey, we took another look at your x-ray and, well, it doesn't look like it's just dislocated. We think it may be fractured too, your shoulder. And I'm just, oh, man. But uh, got to give props, St. Luke's in Jerome, Idaho. What a great staff. What a great bunch of people. They, they, were, they were wonderful. They were really great. And I also, whoever makes Dilaudid, <laughs> can I just say thank you? Because <laughs> about five minutes after, after receiving a, a shot of uh, Dilaudid, um, I wasn't out of pain, but I, it was at least, you know, pain that I could, could manage. 
And uh, man, finally they, they they got busy. It's weird. I don't know what happened. Sometimes I show up places and it was totally empty. I was the only one in the emergency room at that time. But after I got there, oh man, here came, you know, two or three more patients. And now everybody's just busy, busy, busy. Bottom line is they got my shoulder back in place. So I'm, I'm on the mend, sore. Holy cow. Had no idea that I would be that sore. You know, just from having my shoulder out. And, and by the way, the good news is, too, the, the doctor at the hospital took another look at the x-rays. They took a few more x-rays and said, okay, no fractures that we can see. Just a, just a really badly dislocated shoulder. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite the experience. Man, you take things for granted. And, and if, if nothing else this impressed on me, well, a couple of things. Number one, how quickly things can change. My feet slipping out from under me. I mean, my day was going great right to that point. And then suddenly I was like, man, I'm in some of the worst pain I think I've ever felt in my life. And, uh, you know, trying to assess what can I drive myself or not. That was that was one realization. It can all change very, very quickly. So don't take anything for granted. Here's the second thing, though, and this is probably the most important. When you need help, and in this case, I really needed help. What a blessing to have people around you who will drop what they're doing and come to help you. Now, interestingly enough, my son, who drove me, you know, to the, to the Instacare and drove me to the hospital, he had a doctor's appointment of his own, which unfortunately I, I kind of delayed him and, and made him miss. But uh, pretty soon my wife took off work and came and, and sat with me. And um, again, I just, I have the, the deepest admiration for those people Who's uh, first of all, whose profession is to, to help, you know, heal the sick. But uh, I just I have such appreciation for people who will be there. In fact, I, I'm striving to become more like that kind of a person because sometimes I'm not so I'm stingy with my time. So all in all, it was a good day. Once the pain stopped, it was a much, much better day. But you've heard me talk about, wow, it seems like time is really sped up. And, you know, times are good when, when time is going really fast. Okay, yesterday was one of those times when I experienced uh, it slowing to a crawl. In fact, in some ways, it felt like it might even be going backwards. Like every second that I was waiting for some kind of, uh, of relief. Crazy stuff. But fortunately, my voice is still intact, so... I'll get on to the uh, real meat of the show. Thank you for letting me share my medical journey and my uh, ineptness. By the way, I don't look too beat up, but uh, I definitely, (laughs) I definitely have looked better. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I know we're all trying to do our part, right? And I'm convinced that uh, thinking clearly and independently, that's a big part of making a difference today. By the way, speaking of making a difference, GarageDoorProServices.com, one of my sponsors, they make a difference in the lives of their customers. They install, they service, they repair garage doors, whether it's residential, whether it's commercial. If you live in St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, anywhere in that region, these are the folks you want to talk to. They sell American-made garage doors. They install 
They service. In fact, you should look at some of the reviews that their customers have left for them on their website. They really know how to go the extra mile. So if you need some more information, pick up the phone and call 435-525-2773 or go to garagedoorproservices.com. So I saw this video clip yesterday of CNN's Don Lemon throwing a reparations question at uh, someone with connections to the royal family. I know there's been, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Queen of England passing away and uh, the, the vast royal fortune and so forth. And of course, this just transfers to King Charles, who apparently doesn't have to pay taxes. Must be nice to be the king. But what was really amazing is Don Lemon threw a, uh, a very, uh, he threw a very socially woke question out there at this uh, this woman. Um, her name is Hillary Fordwich. And I'm thinking he was probably expecting her to give him some woke, some woke uh, validation, but what he got instead was what may be the greatest 90-second history lesson ever. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some of the details here with you, and then I'll actually play the audio from this clip. This is from Deborah Hein, or Heine, from AmericanGreatness.com. She says, a British royal watcher stunned CNN's Don Lemon Monday night when she gave an unexpected answer to his question about whether the royal family should pay reparations for slavery. Now, you remember, Don Lemon recently lost his primetime slot at CNN, probably expecting to elicit some kind of a woke virtue signaling response from global business consultant Hillary Fordwich when he complained about how Queen Elizabeth II's death was coming as England is facing rising costs of living, a living crisis, austerity budget cuts, and so on. And he says, so then you have those who are asking for reparations for colonialism, and they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion here, there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back. And members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you are, you know, you have all this vast wealth? Those are legitimate concerns. You've got to hear her response, though. Because I don't know how I would answer that other than, I'd probably be snarky, which is not the right way to go. But you should check out this. In fact, I'm going to play the audio for you. So you'll hear Don's question. You'll hear Hillary uh, Fordwich's answer. I think she just absolutely knocked it out of the park. Check this out. Well, this is coming when, you know, there's all of this wealth and you hear about it comes as England is facing rising costs of living, a living crisis, austerity budget cuts and so on. And then you have those who are asking uh, for reparations for colonialism. And they're wondering, you know, $100 billion, $24 billion here and there, $500 million there. Some people want to be paid back and uh, and members of the public are wondering, why are we suffering when you are you know, you have all of this vast wealth. Those are legitimate concerns. Well, I think you're right about reparations in terms of if people want it, though, what they need to do is you always need to go back to the beginning of a supply chain. Where was the beginning of the supply chain? That was in Africa. And when across the entire world, when slavery was taking place, which was the first nation in the world that abolished slavery? The first nation in the world to abolish it. It was started by William Wilberforce, was the British. In, in Great Britain, they abolished slavery. 2,000 naval men died on the high seas trying to stop slavery. Why? Because the African kings were rounding up their own people. They had them on cages waiting in the beaches. No one was running into Africa to get them. And I think you're totally right. If reparations need to be paid, we need to go right back to the beginning of that supply chain and say, who was rounding up their own people and having them handcuffed in cages? Absolutely. That's where... They should start. And maybe, I don't know, the descendants of those families where they died at the, in the high seas trying to stop the slavery, that those families should receive something too, I think, at the same time. 
It's an interesting discussion, Hillary. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We'll continue to, to discuss in the future. <laughs> He's shell-shocked. I mean, how do you respond to that? He, that, that moment of silence, that little hesitation of just, uh, he just kind of went into reset mode because, <laughs> well, that's, that's not the, the woke validation I was expecting, but wow. Isn't that funny? But, the, but, but I want you to notice something about the way that she did that. Um, I, like I say, I would have been snarky. Probably would have backhanded him across the face just to make it stick. But, you know, I, I'm not as, as uh, cultured as, uh, as Hillary Ford, which obviously is. But she knew her history. And she just very calmly and in a very succinct way put it out there. There was nothing he could say. There was really, I mean, what, what could he say about that? You could just see how stunned Don Lemon was. And it's this is not, well, let's pile on Don Lemon. Let's make sure he, you know, is is feeling, you know, bad about himself. But, you know, I, I love seeing somebody going for the cheap points and then suddenly getting dunked on like this, it, especially in a very non-offensive, non-confrontational, non-angry fashion. I don't know. I just feel like there's a, there's a good lesson here. And maybe this is a good time to... Uh, to, to shift in, into a discussion of, you know, why is it that, uh, that we become so authoritarian and, you know, it's got to be this way. And, you know, when, when people tell us something, you know, sometimes it's, it, it just comes out as you either think this or you are stupid or you are evil. Why is that? And by the way, I'm not just, it's not just the political left that does this. I know as the midterm elections are coming closer, it's very tempting to look at the other side or one side or the other as some kind of a political savior. There are people counting on this, but you need to be careful because both sides of the aisle are degenerating into authoritarianism. That's not a place where we really want to be if we're trying to make a difference. In fact, I want to share some excerpts from an article by David D'Amato, David S. D'Amato, rather, from uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. I remember reading this one a few years ago and thinking this was really, he was written back in April of 2017. So, yeah, if this is not just for today. It's The situation's become much worse in the last couple of years, but the moral deterioration that we're seeing recalls the totalitarian, communist, and fascist ideologies of the, earliest, of the early 20th century. And we're going to repeat history if we're not careful. David D'Amato says, Look, for years, a constant refrain in American politics has bewailed an increasingly polarized political atmosphere. As the Pew Research Center observes for the first time in nearly 25 years, majorities in both parties express not just unfavorable, but very unfavorable views of the other party. Americans, the Pew study shows, now look across the aisle with fear, anger, and contempt, committed more strongly than ever to their respective teams. On college campuses, disagreements that might have been thoughtful or even friendly debates have erupted into violent melees ending in injury and damaged property. Attacks and intimidation, it seems, have become a part of American political life. But he says the conspicuousness of America's political polarization belies a counterintuitive insight. And this is it. The belligerents of the nation's social and political war are actually very much alike. Culturally and aesthetically, the groups appear quite different, but their political philosophies share a common heritage rooted in the anti-Enlightenment ideas of the first half of the 20th century. Now, David D'Amatos is gripped by reductionist groupthink, a toxin generated by the United States' acrid culture war politics. Left and might are moving, left and right, rather, are moving 
regressing, in fact, toward their most crudely authoritarian incarnations. And their declension recalls the totalitarian, communist, and fascist ideologies of the earliest 20th century, early 20th century. Now, i got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own break, but we'll come back to David S. D'Amato's column here. And you know what? I think he has a really great point to consider. And I, I know this is going to sound like blasphemy to some, but I worry about what the left is doing right now because there's very clearly some very destructive policies being implemented. And it's clear that there are people in charge who are like, I don't like the idea of you being free. That, that threatens my authority. But there are also people on the right calling as a counter for this to, to be just right-wing authoritarianism. We need a strong man. We need a man on horseback to come in here and rule with a heavy hand and show us how it's done. I don't think that's really a great alternative. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. It is, after all, National Preparedness Month. So you might want to think about taking some steps, and here's a little incentive to do so. If you haven't, uh, you know, filled in a few gaps in your food storage or your emergency preparedness supplies, you can get 30% off for a limited time. Just click on the link in my show notes. That's lifesavingfood.com. It'll take you right to their website. You can do some shopping, feel some peace of mind. I don't know, maybe even stock up on some really uh, timely Christmas gifts for the people who are most important to you. All right, back to David S. D'Amato's column about how both sides of the aisle are degenerating into authoritarianism. Now, again, this was written five years ago, five and a half years ago almost. So you may think, well, is he pointing the finger at Trump and saying he's the problem? And I don't know that he's necessarily calling Trump out as the problem, but he's pointing out that what the left is susceptible to, that, that sense of, you know, well, we're in charge and you have to do what we tell you, you can find that on the right as well. In fact, here's how he puts it. He says, classical liberalism effectively sidelined. The familiar battles of that early 20th century period are reborn in violent confrontations between MAGA alt-right and black-clad anti-fascists, both groups equally enthralled by collectivism and intolerance. Now, he says, President Trump, with protectionism, his gospel, has successfully conjured the old arguments, arguments rather for internal self-sufficiency or autarky, so central to the rhetoric of Italy's fascists and Germany's national socialists. The goal was to possess all that was economically necessary within the borders of the homeland. Now, see, as far as energy policy goes, I kind of like the idea of energy independence. In fact, I miss it a lot, mostly anytime I fill up my gas tank. But anyway, you get the picture. David D'Amato says, if conquest and empire were essential to that nationalistic end, then they were the proper goal of the state, its right and destiny. And he says, history seems poised to repeat itself given the current political climate. In the early, early 20th century, various socialist schools outstripped classical liberalism as the dominant idea on the continent. Their message capturing European hearts and minds, communists and fascists fought each other for converts and for political power. As historian Mary Vincent observes, the battle for the streets was very real. In an age of genuine mass politics, street violence became the leitmotiv of interwar Europe. 
Vincent explains the new politics divided between fascism and communism filled public space with disciplined, uniformed bodies ready to advance the collective goals of party and state. Now, he says these warring authoritarians, socialists, all of them, shared a common disdain for Enlightenment's liberal conception of freedom, namely the freedom of the individual to live out his or her life autonomously, uncoerced, and pursuing goals of his or her own imagining. Modernity required something more of the individual, that he or she be absorbed into the body of the total state, the consecrated instrument variously of the nation, or the proletarian revolution, or even history itself, depending on the socialist school. So he goes into discussing the narcissism of small differences and points out that the new conception of freedom, deeply embedded in today's politics, reflects the submersion of the individual and the Hegelian idea that the state precedes the individual in importance. Yeah, I don't, I don't hold to that. Superficial differences notwithstanding, he says, both the left and rightmost spaces of today's political spectrum as properly understood seem to have absorbed Hegel's idea of the organic state, the state as the divine idea and source of the individual's spiritual reality. Now, this wrong-headed way of thinking about the nature of political power has metastasized through the body politic. And as before, both sides represent authoritarian populism, even as they vie for control of the governing apparatus. Wow. So, at present... Group identity and insignia become this all-consuming obsession of both the left and the right, just as they were for the fascists and the communists who marched in the, marched in the streets, eager to spill each other's blood. Both sides carry and carefully guard the kind of sustained, righteous indignation that comes with certainty of the religious kind. And David S. D'Amato says, look, this kind of certainty is dangerous to a free society, because once it takes hold, the virtues of the cause held beyond any doubt seem to excuse any crime committed in their pursuit. Orders must be followed because the ends justify the means. And a free and open society requires the round rejection of both left and right flavors of failed 20th century authoritarianism. The restoration of classical liberal ideas that transformed the world and yet were never given their due. So I guess in, in so many words, don't don't give in to... if if, if if part of what's your belief of this is how the world should be involves having to violently control others through the state, you've gotten off track. And that's as true for those of us on the right as it is for those on the left. Frankly, these labels just don't matter as much as we think they do. And I'm going to sound like a real radical for saying this, but I think that the best possible existence is one in which the influence of the state, whatever type of government that may be, is very limited. As in, you know, the only time we really should encounter the federal government is when you go to mail a letter at the post office. But that's sure not the case today, right? Everything from how your toilet flushes to what kind of food you can eat to, you know, how your car can run, what kind of mileage it can get. It's all under control of one form of government or the regulatory state or another. Not really good. Not a good idea. Now, there's another story I wanted to share with you, too. You'll find this in my show notes. This is uh, from Theodore Roosevelt Malik. The Numbers, Please, is the title of this piece. And he says, Stop Believing the Propaganda and Lies from the Media on Demographics. This was very fascinating to me because he says the numbers don't add up. Of course, figures never lie, but liars do figure, as the old saw goes. But have you ever watched TV, streamed Netflix, paged through a magazine, or viewed a commercial advertisement and thought, hmm, 
Something seems out of whack. Why is everything portrayed as so uh, gay, lesbian, and black, as if America had instantly and forever completely changed? And why have these democratic misperceptions been used to fuel media and political hate-mongering? So he refers to a recent YouGov poll that asked people to look in the mirror and asked how they envision the country. And it turns out that Americans vastly overestimate the size of all minority groups, representing an overscaling problem for which there should be some accounting. Now, the poll's findings are alarming. Among the questions, what percentage of the country is black? Now, the average answer that respondents gave was uh, 41%. The actual number is 12%. Now, of course, if you watch TV commercials, you would think, well, it's got to be closer to 90%. Okay, what percentage of marriages are mixed race? Answer, 50%. No, the actual number is 1%. But if you watch television commercials, you would think it's more like 99%. What percentage is Latinx? Sorry, that word just doesn't sit well with me. Average answer, 39%. Well, the actual number is 16%. Also, most Latinos hate the term Latinx. How many families make over $500,000 a year? Average answer, 26%. The actual number, just 1%. But we somehow think a quarter of the country is rich. What percentage of Americans are vegetarians? Uh, Most people would say, "Ah, I guess 30%. No, the actual number is about 5%. Well, what percentage of Americans live in New York City? Average answer, an astounding 30%. The The actual number is 3%. Here's another relevant one. What percentage of Americans are transgender? The average answer given was 22%. The actual number, not even 1%. So what percentage of your fellow citizens are gay? Average give was, or the average answer given was 30%. The actual number is around 3%. So why do people have such bogus and inaccurate estimates? It's the media. The media and advertisers run race, gender, and wealth stories constantly. And they aren't just biased. What they're doing is they're misrepresenting the truth, and of course they've gone fully woke. There's next to nothing about the average Tom, Dick, Harry, Sue, or Karen. Nothing about the so-called boobs in flyover country or the exurbs. Nothing about everyday life lived by the majority of real people. And the result? Americans are being constantly brainwashed by the nation's corporate left-wing media. It's misinformation and propaganda galore. I mean, Hitler's own propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, would be proud if he had half the success. Now, there may come a day when a new and improved obsession with equality, diversity, and inclusion, or, God forbid, the equity of outcomes, will grind down the very last of all things. Clearly, that's their plan. In the meantime, we need things that can serve as a map of the true landscape of unequal men and their unequal things. And perhaps some future Marxist equalitarian or stylish university lecturer with tats and nose rings will, upon reading or hearing them, suddenly remember the great truth that things and men can be divided between better or worse, between good or evil, and that for the sake of all our sanity, we would do well to rank things as our ancestors once did. Now, there's much more to this article. I'm going to let you discover this on your own. But this is, again, from uh, Theodore Roosevelt Malik. And the, the point here, above all, is just simply, you wonder why people have such a distorted perception of reality? It's because our media, including the advertising media, often simply lies about reality. And Theodore Roosevelt Malik says, stop believing them. I think that's pretty sound advice. 
Speaking of sound advice, got some great information from Jeff Deist. That's coming up just the other side of our break. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we're back. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, could you consider... Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find resources for wrong thinkers. You'll find my show notes, which down at the bottom of the page is a big subscribe button. Drop me your email. I will send you a copy of my show notes every single day that I do the show. I'm not promising it's going to solve all your problems and, you know, raise your IQ and make your breath minty fresh, but it'll definitely give you some great reading material and things to consider to have a better take on what's happening in the world. You also get to re- to uh, meet some of my great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com. I consider clicking on their website as well. So I've kind of been banging the drum hard today about how the most important solution that any one of us can supply to a broken world is to become an extraordinary individual. And I've got a great article here. This is actually a speech that was given by Jeff Deist from uh, Mises.org. Five Keys to Professional and Personal Development. This was a talk he delivered earlier this month to a student workshop at the Ron Paul Institute during their conference in Northern Virginia. And what he says is, he says, the remarks I've prepared today relate to your personal and professional development, which are, of course, closely interrelated. Now, this is not to be confused with self-help, a somewhat disreputable genre whose practitioners want to sell you shortcuts. Development means just that. Developing your skills, knowledge, and interest to advance toward goals which hopefully become more clear as you work through your 20s and 30s. Now, he told these folks, remember, you have a longer work life than your parents and grandparents, so you have more time and more choices, perhaps, than they did. But he says, it's important not to waste your best years for learning when your brain's neurons fire at their best. Even at your age, still in college, it's not too early to view yourselves as professionals and to take your work seriously. So here are five suggestions you can implement immediately to stand apart from your peers. And by the way, this is not just for young people, for those saying, well, thank goodness I'm not a college student. I don't have to pay attention. Jeff Deist says, first of all, sift. Access to information is virtually costless today, but your job is to sift through all the white noise and to recognize what's important. The supply of information in a digital age outpaces demand and makes information very, very cheap. In a digital world, information is instantaneous and often free of any financial cost. This is especially true of social media, where information and opinion are readily available, but knowledge and discernment are in short supply. When something is cheap and easy, we naturally tend to discount its importance. Now, that wasn't always true. In fact, previous generations had to work hard for access to information, which was largely contained in physical books, which may not have been easily available or affordable. Jeff Deist says, my great-grandfather, who lived with us very briefly, was born in the late 1800s. Like many of his generation, he didn't finish high school and thus was only qualified for manual labor. So he took it upon himself to enroll in a correspondence course, the kind of thing literally advertised in the back of magazines. He probably mailed physical cash to an address listed, then waited some time for the materials. He read each course, took tests at home, and sent the tests by mail for grading. Now, all of this took a couple of years, but at the end, he had enough knowledge and some kind of credential to become an electrician for a large company. This job paid enough to afford a middle-class home, which he largely built and wired himself. 
The information needed to become an electrician was quite valuable to him. It was not cheap and instantly available. Now, by contrast, today we hold almost all the world's history and accumulated knowledge in the smartphone sitting here. And that's both a blessing and potentially a curse. Sifting, not access, is the challenge. Your job is to sift through it all and not get sidetracked by the wrong information. Time is important, and he says everything you do has an opportunity cost. Forbearance can be effective as action. Secondly, he recommends of his five keys to professional and personal development, read. Now, this is the simplest thing that you can do to distinguish yourself, and that's become a voracious reader. It's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. In fact, he says you should strive to read one book every week. Now, that can be difficult if you're a full-time student. And, of course, you probably can't read a 900-page treatise like Human Action so quickly. By the way, for the record, that's the hardest book I've ever attempted to read. But anyway, back to Jeff Deist. He says, if you make the habit now as a young person, when reading speed and retention are higher, you will reap enormous benefits. For longer books, set a target page count every day, and when life intervenes, make up for the lost day or days over the weekend. Now, he says there's one caveat to, uh, with respect to the books that you read, as Charles Haywood counsels, give strong priority to books written more than 100 years ago. And he says, be careful with books written in the last 50 years. Older books have passed the market test. We still read Socrates and Shakespeare for a reason. If book or author still resonates after a century, your time is probably well spent. Almost new, all new books, regardless of genre, have an earlier and better analog. And while this may not supply to recent developments in science and technology, but when reading philosophy, history, humanities, and social sciences, you should go to original sources at this point in your education. Spot on. He is absolutely right. Number three on his list is to learn continuously. Learning must be continuous over your lifetime. In fact, he says formal education is just the beginning. Unfortunately, you cannot rely on parents or high school or college curricula to teach you the basics that his aforementioned great-grandfather had learned by his teen years. And by the basics, Jeff Deist is talking about a core liberal arts education with sufficient history, philosophy, epistemology, classics, rhetoric, languages, art, and literature to qualify you as an educated person. In fact, I'm going to use another phrase because some people are educated. What? You mean to be some pointy-headed, hoity-toity, blah, blah? It's more like being a well-rounded person, a person with a well-rounded understanding of the world around us. Now, Jeff Deist says you've got to learn this, most of this on your own throughout your lifetime. That's a daunting commitment, but it's a worthwhile one, and it will pay off career-wise, especially in an era where the most valuable financial asset you can own might be your ability to earn inflated income with your knowledge. Number four, he says, avoid arguments. Jeff Deese says you should be too busy developing your knowledge and skills to argue with people. This is especially true when said people are online strangers or exhibiting bad faith. The famous Dale Carnegie, best known for how to win friends and influence people, insisted that nobody wins an argument. In fact, the winner has wasted time and burned social capital while the opposing party is either defiant or quietly hurt despite outward bravado. In an era of information overload when opposing views and arguments are easy to research, most people perversely dig their heels in even more. Trump campaign advisor Steve Bannon calls this post-persuasion America, a symptom of too many shrill attacks and too little hearts and minds persuasion. Arguments have become as cheap as information. 
So you can enjoy them in the same way you enjoy junk food or a mindless movie. But don't make a habit of wasting your time on those who are beyond persuasion. He says, you're too busy for this, or you should be. In fact, he says, remember this admonition from the 17th century satirical poem, Hudibras. He that complies against his will is of his own opinion still, which he may adhere to yet disown for reasons to himself best known. Huh, I've heard the first part of that, hadn't heard the rest. Number five on his list is promote people, not just ideas. Jeff Deist says, finally, as you develop and improve, please remember that, that relationships will determine your success and happiness more than ideas. We like to think that ideas run the world or that an absence of ideas, ad hocism, ruins it. But leaving aside the question of whether ideology itself can become a straitjacket, ideas are meaningless without flesh and blood people to animate them. We don't live in a Robinson Crusoe society. Examine the life of any successful older person and you will discover a deep network of relationships and connections, whether business or personal. And of course, this is especially true in academia. Most people are not born wealthy and connected and worry that everything hinges on who you know. But Jeff Deese says you can build networks and you can apply your knowledge and skills to the real world of corporeal, of corporeal humans by understanding their mostly cooperative nature. Consider the sociology of the Austrian School of Economics, a relatively small fishbowl but fraught with intrigue, conflicts, and turning points. What if uh, some of these, uh, these folks who uh, helped to found it, like Boehm Bauer, could not actively set out to build an intellectual apparatus from Menger's early work? What if, Royal, what if World War II had never happened and Mises had stayed in Vienna? What if the South Royalton Conference in 1974 hadn't resuscitated the movement? What if Henry Hazlitt and Leonard Reed hadn't provided support for Mises in America? The lesson here is that their interpersonal relationships and events between great thinkers often have as much impact as their work itself. So his advice is make friends and be a friend along the way. Loyalty and gratitude are very important and often overlooked in our grasping society. People like to follow people, not abstractions. So do your best to be a good and serious person, one who can advance both people and ideas. He says your greatest asset is time, which as young people seems uh, to stretch out before you. But he says it goes quick. And I encourage all of you to consider these five keys to make the most of it. And I see personal application for every one of these five keys that he shares here in my own life. And I'm not a young person. But I know a few young people that I'm really looking forward to sharing this article with what they do with it well that's up to them but i still think it's pretty sound advice this is the brian hyde show